You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The opening of today's show is totally by. By as in bifurcated. First up, this is what it sounds like under my office windows right now. The chanting and tear gassing has been going on under our windows for nearly two weeks, ever since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. Pardon me, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police in Minneapolis on May 25th. And that chant, Black Lives Matter, has been heard in cities large and small, all over the country, all around the world. The protests are only growing bigger with each passing day. There's something happening here, something necessary and important and long overdue. If you've seen clips from the demos in Seattle on the news or on Twitter, which let's be honest is where most of us are getting our news these days, if you've seen video of police using tear gas on protesters after the mayor of Seattle said tear gas would no longer be used on protesters, you've seen my office. We're a half a block from Seattle's 13th precinct. This is where crowds are calling on city leaders to defund the Seattle Police Department And this is where, night after night, the Seattle Police Department makes a pretty convincing case for defunding the Seattle Police Department. And a thing happened here last night, something that pretty clearly demonstrated the double standards that communities of color and their allies are out in the streets protesting. A white guy drove a car into the crowd right under my office windows, drove his car into the crowd like a terrorist, and miraculously didn't run anyone over. Then he stepped out of his car with a gun and shot a demonstrator in the arm. He's going to be okay. Then the shooter, the asshole in the car with the gun, began waving his gun around over his head. People ran. There were hundreds of cops all around, the same cops who pushed into crowds to arrest a single protester, but they didn't do anything. The shooter calmly walked toward the police lines where he was ever so gently taken into custody. Unlike protesters who've been taken into custody on this same corner, the shooter wasn't thrown to the ground. He wasn't beaten or shot at point-blank range with one of those non-lethal except when they're not rubber bullets. He wasn't put into a chokehold. No one kneeled on his neck. Mike Pesca at The Gist. I'm a fan of Mike's and I'm a fan of The Gist. Mike Pesca argued last week that we can't talk about the militarization of the police without also talking about and doing something about the militarization of the American public. We are awash with guns. The cops are gunned up because Americans are gunned up. Cops need all these guns and all this lethal force they have at their disposal because they have to assume going into every interaction with a citizen that that citizen could have a gun or worse. But if police have all these guns to protect themselves, themselves, not necessarily the public, from Americans with all these guns, why when people with guns, with those sorts of weapons, show up? White people with guns. Why does nothing happen to them? The only people the police seem interested in terrorizing with their guns and their power and their authority and their rubber bullets and their flashbang grenades and their tear gas are people who aren't armed. When people showed up with guns in the state capitol in Michigan, the police there did nothing. Men with guns, automatic weapons, stood in the gallery over the state senate shouting and intimidating legislators 
who were sending out panicked tweets and nothing happened. We all saw the pictures and video on Twitter of angry white mobs of armed protesters screaming in the faces of cops who weren't in riot gear. They pushed cops and nothing. And in Seattle, when confronted by peaceful unarmed protesters, this. Those are flashbang grenades and tear gas filling the streets. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to see anyone who's taken into police custody get brutalized. The argument here isn't everyone should be equally brutalized by the police. We don't want anyone brutalized by the police at all. So my beef isn't, hey, why didn't that guy with the gun get beaten up or shot or choked out? The issue it illustrates is the disparity of treatment. Black men who may have been selling loose cigarettes or may have unknowingly used a counterfeit $20 bill can't be taken into custody without being murdered at the hands of the cops. But a guy who tried to kill people with his car first in front of hundreds of cops and then tried to kill people with a gun in front of hundreds of cops is handled gently. So it seems to me that guns all by themselves aren't the issue or the only issue. Yeah, let's ban guns, weapons of war, repeal the Second Amendment, regulate guns the way we regulate cars, and in red states, uteruses. But when we see police treat unarmed black men with lethal violence and armed white men with cringing deference, yeah, the issue is obviously not just guns. Posters calling to defund the Seattle Police Department are stapled to telephone poles all around my office all over Seattle. They want, we want, I want, and I'm quoting now, the police department reduced in size, budget, and scope. More money going to nonprofit organizations and mental health services and community centers. Yes. But I think we can all agree that when a guy rams a car into a crowd and starts waving a gun around, that's a job for cops, not social workers. We can't, a la the Wizard of Oz, take that guy out by dropping a community center on him. That's a moment when we probably do need cops from a reformed and much smaller Seattle Police Department. A department that, when it absolutely must take someone into custody, can do so without violence, whether the person being taken into custody is white or not, and armed or not. Okay, that was the first furcation. That was the first half of my divided opening. Here's the other half, something else I wanted to talk about at the top of this week's show. People keep asking me for advice about having sex during this pandemic. I've gone, sadly, from being the guy you could pretty reliably get a yes from, Mr. Permission Slip, to Dr. No. That happened really quickly. But I recognize that abstinence doesn't work. We've talked about that for years. People want to have sex. And a lot of people need to have sex. And there's only so long people are going to go without sex. The authors of a new study in the Annals of Internal Medicine recognized that too, and they came out with some recommendations late last week for how to have sex during this pandemic. Some of it is stuff that we've heard before, said before, right here. Solo sex, masturbation, and online sex are your safest bets. Sex with sex partners you live with is pretty safe, but not 100% safe. Your partner could have been exposed the last time they ducked into the grocery store, who knows? But they offer some guidelines here in this new study for people who want to have sex with someone who isn't themselves, someone who isn't online, someone they don't live with. That is, they have some advice here for folks who want to hook up. These are the ways to minimize but not eliminate your risk. Got a pencil? Write this down. Don't kiss, don't eat ass, wear a mask, no piss play, avoid semen, shower immediately before sex, shower immediately after sex, and clean the physical space with soap or alcohol wipes before and after. So basically, if you're a germaphobe with a mask fetish who doesn't like to eat ass or kiss, your time has arrived. 
the rest of us are going to have to think about how much risk we're willing to tolerate and how many hoops we're willing to jump through and then wipe that hoop down immediately after use. Oh, I also wanted to say that Lindsey Graham is a toxic old closet case. So that's actually three topics. Today's opening wasn't bifurcated. It was trifurcated or perhaps panfurcated. At any rate, it was a lot. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, more guests, no ads, porn star and writer Ty Mitchell joins us. We do a deep dive on anal sex and cleanliness. That's on the magnum. All that on today's show. Hey, Dan, I've been listening to your show for years and never felt compelled to call until now. Thinking about my quarantine sex story, a friend of mine posted on Facebook that he was going to be teaching a Zoom class with a dress shirt on and was wondering whether or not he should wear pants. Well, my mind kind of went crazy with that idea and thought of him sitting there with a dress shirt on and his big uncut dick hanging out. So knowing something about the wheel of consent, I thought it would be a transgression if I went ahead and did that without him knowing it. So I I am'd him and I said to him, would it be okay if I jerked off thinking about you and your big uncut dick hanging out? And he sent me back an IM saying that he thought it was the hottest thing ever, which led to an exchange, which went on for quite a bit. And I think the both of us ended up getting off on. So that's my sex story. And I'm sticking to it. I'm generally loath to endorse calling someone and asking for their permission to masturbate about them with the exception of an established partner that you have an established rapport with where the ask for consent to masturbate about them is a kind of flirtation. Because if you call and ask somebody who isn't a sex partner that you have no established sexual rapport with, if you can masturbate about them, that's just creepy, manipulative shit. Do not do it. You are free, however, to masturbate about whatever the fuck you want to masturbate about whenever you want to masturbate about it. And you don't need anyone's consent to masturbate about them. So I'm not, I'm totally into your quarantine sex story and I'm putting it on the air, but I'm not endorsing, just to be clear, randomly calling strangers or acquaintances or people you work with and asking for their, or celebrities and asking for their permission to masturbate about them. Only do it with an established partner who regards it as a kind of flirtation and it is all right. Thank you for calling and sharing your quarantine sex story. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. We've been in a discussion with my husband's cousin regarding her 15 year old son. He's been quote unquote dating a woman who is 20. He lives here in the States and she lives in England. They recently broke up and he was completely distraught. He was hyperventilating He was freaking out. He was acting like he was going to pass out to the point where his mom almost called an ambulance to make sure that he was okay. They haven't gotten back together, but he's indicated that if she ever wanted to, he would go back with her in a heartbeat. We're not sure what her objective is here. We're not sure if they're actually in a relationship. We're not sure if she, maybe she's trying to exploit him for money. Maybe she's actually a catfish. Maybe she's just stringing him along. We're just not really sure what is going on or how to react. His mom's worry is that she wants him to be safe and not send her any money or otherwise allow her to come here without supervision, especially because he's 15 and she's 20. His mom is also concerned that he could really be hurt or or harmed by her in some way. His dad is in the picture, but he doesn't take it seriously at all. So... His dad's really no help there. 
what do we do, Dan? Should she call the police? Should she reach out to the woman and try and have a conversation? Should she just forbid her son from talking to this woman, which is pretty hard with him needing to have his phone and laptop for other things? Does she just closely monitor it as well as she can? What do we do here, Dan? We're just not really sure what is the best course of action. You do what you can, recognizing that there isn't much you can do. You can't stop this boy from feeling his feelings. He had an online relationship. It was intense. Some people really get invested in their online boyfriends or girlfriends, people they've never actually met in real life, in the flesh. Internet connection can really facilitate the establishment of a a, a deeply felt bond. And she dumped him. And there's nothing you can do about him being hurt, him being angry, him being disappointed, except listen to him. Let him feel his feelings. Validate his feelings. It sucks to get dumped, whether it's an IRL girlfriend or whether it's an online girlfriend. Yeah, it sucks to get dumped. You can't call the police on some stranger on the other side of the planet who's never been in the same room with this 15-year-old boy. Perhaps the relationship was inappropriate. You don't even know if this person exists. I think you should say that to him. Once you guys let him plow through the intense initial feelings of having been dumped, then you can reason with him. It's possible that this person is lying about who they are, is sending him fake pictures. You might want to draw him out about the interactions that he's had. Have they swapped pictures? Has she solicited photographs from him? That might be a crime. That might be something that you can report if you wish. But he's not going to open up to you guys if you are invalidating his feelings or insisting he not feel the way he feels, that he not be hurt. And he is hurt. And it is a legitimately painful experience to go through something like this. Let him let it out. Let him vent. There will come a moment after the panic attacks, after the anger, after the raging, when he may be ready to talk about this calmly with you. And you can emphasize to him the importance of online safety going into these sorts of interactions with strangers on the other side of the world with all of his bullshit detectors firing, not just trusting people because they seem trustworthy, but like really waiting a long time to establish that kind of trust, not sending your photographs to just anybody who asks for them, particularly when you're 15 years old, you can really get in trouble for that. Not just the person who asked for them or that you sent them to, he himself could get in trouble for taking or sending photographs of themselves. If that happened, you don't say whether that happened, but the way people flirt and swap photos online is likely to have happened, or at least he's thought about it, or it's a possibility in his next online relationship. But it's horrible when you watch a a 15-year-old go through something really dramatic and they're having really intense feelings and they're very angry and very hurt. You want to rush in and fix it or solve it. You want to call Interpol and have this perhaps 20-year-old woman in England arrested somehow as if that's going to make him any less angry or hurt. You want to do something. But what can you do? There's nothing you really can do. You can listen. You can validate his feelings and the intensity of his feelings and then wait for the intensity to pass and have a chiller, calmer, more rational conversation with him about what this means. He's been dumped and that sucks and that hurts and everybody has gone through it. Maybe you could share some stories of times you were dumped and you were just as upset as he was when he was dumped. But obviously you lived 
and you survived and you got over it and you got under somebody else and he can get over this person too in time, just as you have gotten over the people who've dumped you. Hi, Dan. My question is I'm in a relationship and we're open and we live in a really small place in Canada where it's like just very tiny and being open you're opening yourself to lots of judgment, um, to people talking about you and knowing who you are. And we're just really struggling with how can we open ourselves to meeting new people when we live in such a small place. Like, for instance, there's somebody on Instagram who I think is really cute and I follow them and he follows me. And, you know, sometimes we respond to each other's stories, but I'm just like, I I talked about it with my partner and I said, you know, how do I reach out to this person and say, hey, I think you're cute. Um, You want to hang out sometime. I'm in an open relationship without that potentially getting spread to so many people um, and just feeling fearful of judgment and living in a small place and everyone knowing your name and your father and your mother and your siblings and I don't know. We're just both struggling. It's not a big, as big of a deal for my partner because he isn't from here, but he's, he has a business, his own business here. He's well known in the community for that. And so we're just not sure how to approach dating other people when publicly, you know, on social media, we're together. People know we're together, but they don't know we're in an open relationship. Um, so we're just not sure how to navigate that and how to branch out and spend time with other people, and especially in a sexual way. So any advice on that would be greatly appreciated. Kind of a frustrating trap, isn't it? You follow this guy's Instagram, he follows your Instagram, you comment on his stories, he comments on your stories. If he knew you to be single, he might ask you out. He might start flirting more explicitly with you. You would be free to flirt more explicitly with him. He may be interested in you in the way you would like him to be interested in you. But because he knows you're in a relationship, that's probably evident from your Instagram. Maybe he's not an asshole and isn't going to hit on the person with a partner and doesn't want to complicate their life, even though a certain attraction, at least an Instagram level attraction has been established. So how do you reach out with him without that potentially getting spread around to other people without him confiding in his friends? Well, in his favor, He's obviously not an asshole and that he hasn't hit on you explicitly because he knows you have a partner and wants to be respectful of that. So odds are good if that's what's going on with him, he will be respectful of the fact that you guys are in an open relationship, but you're not too terribly open about it because you all live in a small town. But it's still a risk for you. If you cannot stand the idea of people in your small town gossiping about you and potentially getting back to your parents or your husband's clients for his business, then don't shit where you eat. As they say, don't meet people in the small town where you live. Meet people elsewhere. Travel for outside sexual experiences and wall them off. That's what a lot of you know organized swingers were doing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and even now, today, there's a lot of conservative, even Republican, suburban, rural, white, cul-de-sac, Texas kind of couples in the organized straight swinging scene, and they don't swing where they live. They don't shit where they eat. They go to swingers conventions. They travel. They make friends in other towns who are also swingers, and then they make an effort to go see them, to establish those relationships and sustain them over time. 
by traveling. And then they wall off the area where they live, which is a little more difficult to do in our socially connected age, from any hint that they might be anything other than monogamous, which is the default assumption. People see a straight couple, they think monogamous. Unless that straight couple says or does something that indicates otherwise, straight people benefit from that monogamous assumption. And swinging couples benefit from it. Swinging couples who want to be swinging on the down low benefit from that monogamous assumption. You and your partner currently benefit from it. Your parents, his clients, people in your small town all assume you're monogamous when you're not. There is no way to reach out and get some dick in your town other than your partner's dick without it potentially getting out, without people gossiping. So you have to balance the risk and the reward. The risk of some people gossiping against the reward of getting to climb up on that dick. And if you decide the risk is too great, the personal risk, the social consequences potentially, you can still climb up on other dick. You can still reward yourself in that way. You're just going to have to go to greater effort, greater length, and travel a bit more to get on that other dick. Hey, Dan. I have a question that I would like for you or your listeners to help me get to the bottom of. In a short amount of time, I have seen three different men wearing wedding bands, two wedding bands on both of their fingers. These aren't fashion rings that are being worn on any other fingers. These are wedding bands being worn on the ring fingers of their left hand and their right hand. What does this mean? What is it all about? What does it indicate? Who is wearing them and why? I have no idea what that means. I even went to the trouble and bother of Googling that for you and found nothing. So my assumption would be it's a coincidence that you've run into three different straight guys who like rings and like to wear them on as many fingers as they can jam them onto. But if someone out there is listening and this is some sort of emerging trend, if this is how poly people are now marrying more than one partner in spirit and in their hearts, if not legally, or if this is some sort of super secret gay sex signal, please give us a call and clue us all in. There's also the magic of the direct question. When you see one of these guys who's got rings on both of his ring fingers, what appear to be wedding bands, you ask him, hey, I've noticed that a few guys I've seen lately have had rings on both wedding fingers. What's up with that? And see what he says. Hi, Dan. I am a 36-year-old pansexual married woman slash non-binary person. And I actually just have a quick question about resources for coming out as pansexual. Um, my husband knows and mostly supports the fact that I identify as pansexual, but is still kind of struggling with what that means for me. And I'm also wondering about resources to hand to parents. Um, should I come, come out to my parents? Because, you know, there are books that are made for parents of gay and lesbian youth um, and people that books that we can kind of hand parents, but uh, I'm not really aware of anything for the pansexual community. So if you have any or your listeners have any resource recommendations, I'd appreciate it. I don't think that hard to understand what pansexuality is. I am looking at the dictionary definition here. Someone who's not limited in sexual choice or desire with regard to biological sex, gender, or gender identity. There are some people who feel the term 
bisexual with that bi in it right there at the front. Often people shorten that term to just bi. References or endorses the gender binary. People are either male or female and I am attracted to if I am bi-identified male or females. But there is a spectrum as we all know now of gender identities and gender expression and pansexual has been embraced by many people in addition to and alongside often bisexual as a term that encompasses a desire and attraction not just to males and females but to everybody along all the different points of the gender spectrum potentially. I don't think that's that hard to understand. If you've had that conversation with your husband and he still doesn't understand or you say he's struggling to understand what this means for me, what your pansexual identity means for you, what I think is going on here is he wants a little clarity. Now that you're out to him about being pansexual, have you guys had a conversation about whether that means you want to open the relationship, whether that means you want to express your pansexuality at the moment, you're in a committed relationship that you didn't indicate, but everybody looking at you two is going to assume and perhaps is a monogamous committed relationship. Often when someone comes out to a partner that they committed to at a time in their life when they believed themselves to be heterosexual or allowed other people to assume they were heterosexual because they didn't want to or ever think they were going to come out, when that person comes out to their partner, their partner often struggles with what that means for them, whether that means they need to to support your sexual identity or sexual orientation, sign off on you having sex with other people besides just them. I promise you that if your husband is struggling, he's not struggling with the simple and easily understood definition of pansexuality. He's struggling with what that means, your pansexual identity, for your relationship. Is it going to change the nature of your monogamous, I assume, commitment that's what he wants some clarity about. As for the resources out there for parents of queer kids, it's all LGBTQI everything now. And so a lot of these resources in the last couple of decades have been retooled to be more all-encompassing. I promise you, if you direct your parents to organizations that support the parents of queer kids who may be struggling with their kids coming out to them, that they will find, and you will, if you do a little digging, will find resources that are pan-inclusive. Hi Dan, I'm a 26-year-old straight girl from a small town in upstate New York. About two and a half years ago, I met a guy at a bar and I was immediately attracted to him. Because he was married, I wasn't going to do anything about it, but mutual friends informed me that his marriage was very unhappy and that they rarely had sex. He confirmed this as we became friends. A year and 10 months ago, we turned our friendship into a physical relationship. It's the best sex of my life. However, we've also developed feelings for each other over the past year and a half. And we did express that we loved each other at one point. He hasn't said it sober because he doesn't think it's fair to me, but I don't doubt his feelings. The problem comes in the fact that my friends think I deserve more than he is able to give me. While in an ideal world, I would like more in a relationship, I'm also a graduate student and I don't really have the time or inclination to look for a new partner at this time. We see each other fairly regularly, and when we do, the sex is always great. We talk on the phone constantly, and I think it's honestly the best relationship I've ever been in. What do I do, Dan? Do I listen to my friends and end the best relationship I've ever been in? Or do I accept that this is enough for now? What your friends are saying when they tell you you deserve more than this guy is able to give you is that they wouldn't be comfortable themselves in this kind of relationship. It's not what they want. It wouldn't meet their needs. It is, however, what you want right now. And it is meeting your needs right now. Things change. Circumstances change. Your 
boyfriend who is currently married to someone else may not be married to that person two years from now when you're done with school and you may want more and he may be in a position at that point to give you more. If there comes a time when you do want more and he isn't able to give you as much as you want or what you deserve or all the more that you have coming to you, then you get to make a decision at that point, whether you want to stay in the relationship and settle for what he can give you because you love him so much, or you want to end the relationship and go find someone who can give you everything it is that you now want, that your friends felt you deserved all along. But right now, what you need to say to your friends is this works for me and it's working for him. You may be doing God's work here. You're fucking a guy who's in a not happy at this time marriage that is sexless at this moment. His marriage may revive in two years' time, and you guys may, at that point, part when you're ready for more, and he's ready to rededicate himself to a marriage that went through a tough time, and he did what he needed to do during that tough time to stay married and stay sane, but now the marriage is better, and better in thanks, you know, he was able to hang in there for all that time, in part because of you. Your friends have a bias, and it's a really common bias that the only relationships that have worth or value, the only relationships that give you the respect you deserve are those relationships where you could wind up married. You could get Jane Austen at the end. And that's just not true. That's a lie. Over the course of our lives, we will find ourselves in relationships that are not open-ended, relationships where there is no potential for a long, long, long long-ass term commitment, relationships that give us a lot but can't give us everything or more than that relationship can give us, but they are what we need at that time. And we're the better for it, and the person that we're in that relationship is the better for it. And if you can stick the dismount at the end and part as friends when it winds down because you're ready for more or they're ready to move on and you're both ready to move on, hopefully – How do you look back at that relationship and think of it as a failure? Although that is what we are ordered to do. All relationships that didn't hit that marriage and family and multi-decades track that ended in a funeral home for one or both of you, it's just a lie. It's a big fucking lie. The culture tells us, I don't know, to, to stigmatize all relationships that aren't on the marriage track and the five decades together and somebody's in the funeral home now track. And you just have to ignore it. Tell your friends to fuck the fuck off. This is what's working for you. You hear them, but they're projecting that this relationship that you're in would make them unhappy and they assume it's making you unhappy or must be making you unhappy or will make you unhappy soon. And you just have to tell them that you don't feel the way they feel and they need to respect your feelings. And he, to the extent that it's possible for him to make you happy, he makes you happy and he is what you need right now. Maybe not forever, but right now. And your friends have to respect that. Hi, Dan. I am a gay man living in the South. Um, I've been with my husband for about 14 years. And we've been married for six years. And we have two small kids. Uh, we have a pretty great life. And um, I don't have any have any issues there. Um, I do have a complicated family question that I was hoping to get your thoughts on. I have a, a complicated family past. My dad left when I was fairly young and I didn't have much of a relationship with him when I was a, when I was a child. Uh, so my mom was a uh, single parent uh, raising me and my sister. Um, I went away to college and then the summer after my freshman year, I moved back in with my mom and that's when she found out that I was gay and she uh, kicked me out of the house. Um, it's been, a, been about 16 years and I've not had a relationship with her since. 
However, when my mom did kick me out, uh, I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have any lodging or anywhere to stay when in my college town. So I reached out to my dad. He lived in the same town as my mom. And uh, we forged a new relationship. Uh, at that time, I was an adult and was able to have a, a very fruitful um, relationship with him. Uh, he did have some issues when he did find out I was gay. But, you know, we've worked through those uh, he loves me. He he loves my kids. He loves my husband. So about a year ago, I took a DNA test, uh, one of those ones to tell you about your family history, where you're from. Uh, it was pretty interesting to, to take the test. One of the things those uh, tests do show are uh, your relatives. So I had I matched with you know my mom's sister. It showed that she was my aunt. She had taken the same test, and so it was interesting to see that you know the technology is there to kind of map. Uh, your familial relationships. Uh, I did match with uh, some man. I did not know him. Uh, and it showed that he was my uncle on my father's side. So I didn't know this person, never seen his name before, never seen his picture before. And so at that time, I reached out to one of my mom's sisters, my aunt, who I'd matched with us on that same website that I've had a relationship with her my entire life. Um, and I asked her if the name sounded familiar. And she told me that the, the man's name did sound familiar and that she then disclosed that around the time I was born, my mother was having an affair with um, a man that had the same last name as this person that was showing up as my uncle. So connected the dots, you know, the person who I thought was my father is obviously not my father and this random person is. And so I'm struggling a little bit with whether um, I should tell my dad about this result. He took me in when I needed it. He's been a great father for me since I reconnected with him when I was 19. I still know if it's worth ruining that relationship um, by telling him this news or does he deserve to know? Or maybe he's, he's known this all along. Maybe that was one of the reasons he left when I was a kid. I don't know. And so and I, you know, my, my two sons are adopted, so I understand that love for a child does not necessarily have to have a biological connection. But I, I appreciate what he's done for me my entire life, and I'm just trying to figure out if I owe it to him to tell him the truth. There are truths you tell a loved one, and there are truths sometimes you have to protect a loved one from. Determining which is which can be difficult. This often comes up when we're discussing a one-off infidelity. Somebody goes out of town or just slips and cheats and they deeply regret it. And the lesson they learned was I risked so much and for nothing and it wasn't worth it and I'm never ever going to do it again. And those people, people in that situation, not serial adulterers, not people who fucked their wife's sister on their wedding night, the one-off deeply regretted after years of successfully executed monogamy are often told by me and others and more mainstream sex advice columnists and therapists to shut the fuck up that the loving thing to do sometimes. And in that case would be to not tell your partner, not uh, shift the burden of knowing onto their shoulders. That's what Esther Perel calls it. The burden of knowing. And you have to ask yourself, will the relationship benefit if you shift the burden of knowing onto their shoulders? And often the answer is no, it can destroy a relationship. And sometimes the more loving thing to do is allow the person to live with the illusion that you never cheated on them. I think it helps to tell yourself that you may be living with that same illusion because your partner may have cheated on you and stuffed it down and never told you. And 
you can ask yourself, if they had done it and done it once, would you want to know? And if you're being really honest, often the answer is no, I wouldn't want to know. I want them to protect me from that truth. All right. This is a much different circumstance. And man, is it complicated and is it painful? (sighs) My impulse is to say, you know, your father was there for you at a time in your life that you needed him to be. He wasn't there for you for much of your life when you were left alone with your mother, who doesn't sound like a spectacular person, but he came through for you. And then he unlearned the homophobia that had been pounded into him by the culture. And he loves you and he loves your kids and he loves your husband. And he may be invested in the idea. He may love the thought that you're his biological son and he has this relationship with you now. And the loving thing to do might be to protect him from the truth that you are not his biological son, although you are his son in all the ways, in every important way, in every way, actually, just as your children are your children in every way, your adopted children that you know biological connection to are your children in every way. And maybe allowing him to live with that illusion would be the loving thing to do. What argues against that are the circumstances of your childhood. Like who's protecting who here? If your dad left your mother because he knew that she was having an affair and thought that perhaps his kids or the kids that his wife was having weren't his kids, if that's one of the reasons he left, he may, you know, know or have always suspected that you weren't his biological son and hasn't said anything about that to you to protect you. Ugh. But there's no way of knowing if that's what your father's been doing all this time without having this conversation with your father. So rather than me telling you what to do, I'm going to ask you to think about who your father is and what kind of relationship you have. Not that, you know, telling this truth risks the relationship, but what is he invested in about your relationship? Is he invested in you are his biological son? If so, he may have said things that indicate that in a strong way. And if he is, maybe the way you repay him for coming through for you in a time in your life when you really needed a parent to come through for you is to keep your mouth shut about this thing that until these DNA tests came along, you never would have known about and allow him to live with the illusion. But if your father doesn't seem invested in genetics and that isn't important to him and he loves your kids as his grandkids and has never made a distinction between biological grandchildren. If he has, you know, if your sister has kids that are biologically, he thinks his He's never made that kind of distinction, but maybe you can tell him and it would be a relief for him to know that you know what he always knew and it might bring you closer, but it's a definite risk and there's no way to mitigate that risk away or completely control for it if you want to tell this truth. But I really think you need to sit with it. I think you need to think about it. You need to think about whether this is One of those truths that you must tell a loved one or a truth that in this instance you may want to protect a loved one from. Hello, Mr. Savage. Thank you for listening to my call. Uh, Magnum subscriber here. And I've got a question about flagging. So a while back I went to this business meeting with a coworker, friend of mine. Uh, It was an informal meet and greet type thing. Maybe 15 people there altogether. Uh, Anyway, it was casual. There was this fellow there that was of a little bit older generation, maybe mid-60s, very handsome, very stylish, very charming, uh, out. He uh, held a top position. He was really well-dressed. 
kind of hip but subtle. Uh, anyway, he was wearing these blue jeans, like uh, some kind of designer jeans that were really cool. And these jeans had a button fly. And the second and third buttons were undone, but the top one was still buttoned. And my coworker pointed this out to me. I'm not sure if anyone else noticed. If they did, no one was saying anything, probably because of this guy's status. Whatever. Anyway, after the meeting, my friends said that this guy was flagging. And I don't think so. I mean, this was a business shindig, uh, and he's professional. Also, I've only ever heard of flagging being done with bandanas uh, or shoelaces. So what do you think? Was he flagging? Personally, I don't really think so. Also, is flagging ever done with button flies? So you're in this business meeting, and everyone's just staring at this guy's package. I couldn't tell you what the condition of the zippers on, or buttons on the jeans of the last 10 people I sat down and had a conversation with because I wasn't staring at their dicks the whole time. But somebody who does that, who leaves a couple of buttons unbuttoned on a button fly, it's not about flagging. They're not telling you anything specific about their sexual interests. It's just fashion. And it's a fashion statement that says, oh, my package is so enormous, it can't be contained behind this. If I button this all the way up, I'm just squeezed. It doesn't really mean anything. It is a kind of cod piecing, a kind of sexual display. It was meant, you know, when you leave those buttons popped out, you can see them and they do draw the eye because they're not behind the, you know, the, the fold of denim that covers the button fly. And so maybe he wanted you guys to check out his package. But it's not flagging in the sense of, you know, the old hanky code, which was, I'm sorry, complete bullshit. It got really – I was old enough to have been going to the bars when people were doing that. And at first, you know, when it first started, which was I think before I was born, there was red, there was black, and there was green, and there was blue, and red meant fist fucking, and black meant S&M, and green meant pay me, and blue meant fuck me, or I'm going to fuck you in the butt. Then it became robin's egg blue and baby blue and navy blue and all, you know, it just became more and more specific and elaborate and ridiculous. And in a darkened bar, you couldn't tell what color really anything was. And so the flagging didn't work and it was just stupid. And anyway, that's my question about bandanas and flagging. This isn't flagging. This is fagging. He was just showing off a little bit, hoping to draw your eyes to his dick. Maybe because he's in his 60s and sometimes, you know, as you get older, you still want to feel sexually desirable or as if you have sexual agency, you do want in a way people to notice you still. And you may need to accessorize in ways that draw people's eyes and draw that notice at a time in your life when people begin to erase you as a sexual being as you get older. Who knows? You could ask him, like the woman who's like clocking all those rings on all those guys' fingers. You could ask. I don't think you should ask somebody in a business meeting what it means that their fly is partly unbuttoned. I don't think that would be very professional on your part. But if you develop a friendship with him and you notice this is how he wears his jeans at all times, may just be how he wears his jeans, may not mean anything. But if you're having drinks some night and you want to ask him what it means, you can go ahead and ask him what it means, but then you have to give us a call back and let us know. And I promise you, I don't think it means anything other than check out my package. And it worked. It really did work. You checked out his package. The other person in the meeting checked out his package. It works. Hi, Dan. 34-year-old gay man in Georgia. And I have always only gone out with people who are my age or older, but now that I'm in my 30s, I'm somehow attracting men that are much younger, which has 
been great, I guess. Uh, and I used to be a bottom, but now I am a top. And now that I am topping these younger guys, I'm noticing that maybe they're not as fanatical about hygiene as I was when I was a bottom. And sometimes it's been like very embarrassing secondhand have to like hide the condom afterward or have to like move the sheets so that they don't get embarrassed. And I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm actually afraid to like hook up with a younger guy because I don't want to necessarily have to ask them the awkward conversation, have to ask them the awkward question of, do you know how to maybe prepare for anal sex prior? Like maybe don't eat for a little while before or something like that. It just is such an oogie downer of a conversation to have when you're in the middle of like talking all this stuff that you're going to do to them when they get to your house to have to suddenly throw a bummer in there and be like, please, did you clean? Uh, and I'm certainly not expecting anybody to like use an enema or anything like that. If it was like one of those things where it happened just once or twice, of course that happens to everybody in their life. But this has been like consistently every younger guy that I have hooked up with has kind of had an issue. And I don't know like should I just stop seeing younger guys or should I be taking more of the teacher approach and uh, be prepared that if I'm going to be fucking younger guys, then I should also be prepared to tell them the ins and outs of fucking and some of the basics. Uh, so I don't know how to approach it because uh, I feel like I'm getting turned off of having sex with people that I'm not absolutely confident uh, No how to prepare for anal sex, and any advice would be so great because I don't know, maybe I'm just being a jerk and I should throw down a towel and be glad for young ass. I don't know, so please, help. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, gay culture columnist and porn performer, Ty Mitchell. Hey, Ty, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. So let's just cut to the chase. Why are all these young guys shitting on this dude's dick <laughs> i kind of wish he had been a little bit more uh clear about the issue being shit i always find it kind of i don't know i think this guy's in the, i think this guy's heart is totally in the right place and he seems really compassionate but i don't know when people call it hygiene it suggests that there's some kind of like germ risk around getting shit on your dick but anyway that's just my own personal preference Maybe it's um, unpleasant think, to get shit on your dick and, and you know it's unpleasant and in the guy's defense, he he used you know he's been a he was a bottom for a long time, so he certainly understands the experience from the other side. And it sounds like in the moment he talks about like discreetly taking off a condom that's got shit on it, or you know hiding yeah, the sheets so as not to embarrass the guy who may not know that he just shat on his dick. So he's obviously he cares about the feelings of the of the guys who are shitting on his dick. He's not exploding. It, you know, in anger from some entitled place when when it right. happens, he's just curious. He's noticed his correlation. It's all these younger guys, and and it just seems to happen without fail with these younger guys. And he's wondering what's up with that. Right. Well, I would say first of all, telling people not to eat is not going to fix that problem. Um, I don't think that fasting is a really uh, useful or effective way to prevent shit dick at all, because uh, it usually just disrupts your digestive regularity. And then you, when you hit that section of the ass, it's going to open the floodgates even more. 
So I, I just want to say first and foremost that like trying to fast in order in order to avoid shitting on dicks is often going to backfire, and I've seen it backfire many times, and it's just not healthy, and it takes away your energy to have good sex. And, so and you, uh, and you would have to start fasting days in advance. Right, which is just not healthy. No one should be starving themselves for sex. I mean, I don't think that that is entirely what this guy is suggesting, but I just want to be absolutely clear about that. Um, but I haven't really, I, I'm actually really surprised to hear that the younger guys he's encountering are having issues with uh, with with douching because um, a lot of the younger people I know seem to like be obsessed with it. And so I'm wondering if maybe the issue isn't so much that they're not douching as that they're over douching, which seems to be more of a problem. Dr. Evan Goldstein in New York has like written a lot about this, about how people tend to use too much water and do too many flushes. And what they end up doing is breaching what's called the uh, sigmoid colon, which is about like, uh, I want to say like seven or eight inches up into the rectal cavity. And then once they breach that area, area, all of the shit that was like just nearly done digesting starts to kind of like get sucked into the rectal cavity. Um, so that could be one of the issues, but, uh, you know, that makes sense to me because I, I have noticed among my you know gay friends in their twenties and thirties that douching is much more sort of common than it was when I was in my twenties and like we didn't we didn't douche unless we thought there was a problem. You know, people had a you right. know, the idea was to get a sense of your body, eat a balanced diet, and kind of know when you're good to go, and, and have a sense for it. And then you know if you know shit happened, it sometimes happened, but it only happened rarely. And now it seems that you know everybody I know in their twenties who's a, a bottom or reverse, <laughs> you know, douching is just what they do and, and it's not like it just seems more standard so that makes sense to me that maybe these guys are douching but douching incorrectly because i think it's much more likely that a, a bottom in their 20s or early 20s is douching than not yeah it seems like we're all sharing notes about douching a lot more than previous uh than than we did in an earlier time and we're and we like are all making jokes about douching uh a lot more frequently <laughs> douching seems to be part of the gay discourse in a bigger way but um, that definitely, I don't know if that's actually going to like help this guy. I, cause I know that people who do douche in my experience are really either like particular or self-conscious or just like, they're not really like open to advice on douching, even like from, from me. Like I find that guys, maybe they'll ask about it, like completely separate from sex. Like people who are just friends of mine will, will like ask for douching tips. But like when it comes to intimate partners, like people either are really like don't want to talk about it in my experience or like are really just really particular about what, what they think works for them because it doesn't actually work for them. So my mm -hmm. technique with uh, partners who I'm like kind of weary of, I suppose, or actually this, I've been trying to do this with all partners in general is um, when I start doing foreplay with a guy and I plan on topping, um, I'll usually ask the bottom to finger himself a little bit, like as though they're like fingering themselves for me. Um, or I'll like, okay. and, you're just doing uh, a spot check. and they're doing the spot check. So like right, they right, can right. really kind of gauge for themselves, like, you know, like if they figure themselves and they, you know, feel something or if they like, don't like the smell that fills the room after they pull their finger out or something, then they kind of know. And nine out of 10 times is the bottom is going to be a lot more concerned about the shit than the top is anyway. Um, so that's the technique that I would recommend to this guy. You know, shit does happen. It isn't ass you're fucking. And if you don't want snot on your dick, don't ask to be deep throated. If you're not 
able to roll every once in a while with having to jump in the shower, clean up a little bit. Don't fuck butts. But if you're with somebody once and there's a little shit in your dick, you know, be polite, be kind, you can pivot to something else, clean up discreetly, spare their feelings, don't shame them. But if you're with somebody again and again and again, and it happens every time, at what point is it not top privilege or bottom shaming for you to say, hey, uh, this <laughs> keeps happening and, you know, as polite as I've been, it's kind of unpleasant. Maybe we need to strategize. And it can be nice to say, is there something I'm doing wrong? But of course, I don't think the top is doing anything wrong in that case. But is there something not the bottom's doing wrong or something the bottom could be doing a little differently that might help? Is the top allowed to raise this as an issue if it happens again and again and again? It's so tricky because it's such a sensitive subject for so many people. Uh, um, but I, I agree with you. It's like, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. It's like shit happens. If you don't want to, you know, uh, if you don't want to get hot out of the kitchen, <laughs> but at the same time, it is unpleasant. And like, you don't want shit on your dick all the fucking time. Yeah. It's a difficult subject to broach. I, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, it's not a question that I have a conclusive answer for. I go through this with a lot with people that I have sex with too, where I'm like, what is the right thing to say? When is the right time to say it? Um, I think the fingering method is like super has been super helpful in terms of like, let's like do a little diagnostic of the asshole during foreplay while there's still like a good chance or a good window for someone to, uh, you know, get up and go to the bathroom because they quote unquote have to pee for 20 minutes. <laughs> or sometimes, you know, you do the foreplay and you determine it's probably not a great idea to risk it right now. And you pivot to all the other wonderful fucking hot, sexy things you can do besides. Right. But right. Um, I think having that conversation is something that just needs to happen between two people who have like a, a, a relationship of trust around each other's bodies. You know, if somebody is like, I think, really insecure about that sort of thing, then like they're probably already thinking of it and are like, I don't know, there are ways to open that up with someone that you trust. Um, but I wouldn't well, open it up with somebody who I don't have that kind of relationship with. What about the, the responsibility for gay men to educate their sex partners when there's a, you know, a little bit of an age or an experience gap, your sample is skewed. Like the, the people that you, you may know, or you're having sex with and the guys who are online writing or talking about anal sex and douching, uh, you know, are going to be more educated and self-educated. They don't teach gay butt fucking uh, in sex ed classes in this country or really anywhere. So the the knowledge about it, you either have to actively seek it out and acquire it, or you it's downloaded into you by your first or by important early formative sexual partners or relationships. I remember, you know, my first boyfriend taught me everything I needed to know about butt sex and they didn't cover that in my Catholic high school. And I was grateful for the education. Uh, is there, does that play into it? You know, he says, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. These guys are in their early twenties. The assumption you might make and the assumption I might make is all this information is so widely available. And there's this enormous discourse about it online is that of course the bottom would know this, but what if he doesn't? I mean, I would push back against the idea that you become an anal uh, sex expert just because you're in your 30s. I mean, <laughs> well, no, he's a bottom and now he's a top. I think, like, I'm, I'm addressing the the caller in particular. I don't think there's some uh, <laughs> some knowledge that's imparted to you by the you know on your 35th birthday by the butt sex fairy. <laughs> I'm uh, right. addressing the part the, the caller specific circumstances and his uh, uh, I think uh, multi dimensional awareness of the butt sex thing. 
I mean, if there is a dynamic between somebody that is that has that kind of pupil teacher quality to it, then uh, like I, I, I can I can see that being really helpful. And it's not always tied to age. There are people who are younger and are the more experienced person in a relationship uh, and inexperienced yeah. guys in their 30s and 40s. Uh, but it often correlates that the younger person is less experienced. The older person is more experienced. It's not always the case. So maybe I should have framed it like that. Does the, the more experienced person have a responsibility to, to, to do a little education if they realize that their partner, who may be less experienced regardless of age, doesn't know these things? Or should, should you assume they know these things? What's interesting is the caller takes as a matter of course that he should hide a shitty condom or hide stains on sheets for the well-being of their partner. Because I don't think that's necessarily uh, like going to like help him have that conversation. You know, like if the yeah. caller does agree with us that like shit happens and it's part of anal sex, then then he doesn't actually need to hide these things, for the, especially after they've already, you know, especially with after you guys have both come. It's like. Maybe he's talking about like before the bottom has gotten off. He doesn't want to like kill the mood, but um, it's like, I don't know if shit gets on the sheets, at least with my boyfriend, sometimes there'll be like little stray stains on the sheets and we'll finish having sex and I'll like point them out and we'll kind of laugh at them. Mm -hmm. It is important feedback in a way. Yeah. I think that in order to have that conversation at all about like douching or about like, uh, or even about like diet and like, um, what do we do about the shit that keeps happening during sex? Like for starters, maybe you shouldn't conceal the shit as though it's a huge source of shame in the first place. It could be a conversation starter. Exactly. That would allow you to gauge, allow the color to gauge how aware or how knowledgeable the person that they're having sex with is about, the interventions that they could take to, to prevent shit from happening. Right. I and mean, you know, it takes, it takes a sense of humor. It takes a sense of levity and lightness that like, I think sex gives, gives us a really good portal into experiencing with each other. Ty Mitchell, follow him on Twitter at Ty Mitchell XO and at Ty Mitchell XXX. Of course, the XXX is the explicit content and read his column at Mel Magazine, column name. This could be us. It is terrific. And Ty, you are terrific. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me, Dan. Always a pleasure. Hey, Dan. I'm a heterosexual female from the East Coast, and I'm calling in regards to a rough experience I had back in September 2019. My experience is similar to a caller from episode 668, where a male called in about his husband having sex somnia, aka having sex with him in his sleep without knowing it, except, except for my experience falls on the other end of the spectrum. Back in the fall, I was through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and frequently us backpackers share a motel room with other backpackers when we get are into town. One night, I was splitting a room with my sister and her boyfriend and a male backpacker that I met earlier. He seemed very nice and a sweet person and talked about his distant girlfriend adoringly. There were two bedrooms in our room, and I was in a room with a guy. With the guy, we each had our own bed, and my sister was in the other room with her boyfriend. We were all having a great time, no red flags, and then we went to bed. Here where things took a turn. I woke up in the middle of the night with someone on top of me, dry humping me and touching me. He then slipped in between the covers and started spooning me. I was petrified. I didn't understand what was going on. I then realized that it was the male backpacker that I was sharing the room with. After a few petrified minutes, I got the courage to slip away, grab my phone, and lock myself in the bathroom. Shaking, I called my sister and told her what happened, and she brought me into the separate room with her. My sister and her boyfriend then got up to, um, then got up to confront the male backpacker and kick him out of the room. 
After he left, my sister told me that he said he didn't remember a thing and that he was asleep the entire time. My sister then proceeded to tell me that sex sleepwalking, a.k.a. sexomnia, is a real thing and that I shouldn't be too shaken up about it. I have not seen nor talked to this male backpacker since. I thought I've been able to mentally digest and work through this. However, I have recently been finding that this experience has manifested itself into my current relationships at times. I understand that sexomnia is a real thing, but there is no way to know that if this guy was telling the truth. Here are my questions. How do I process this sexual assault if it was, quote, unintentional sexomnia? And what do you do with people who have but are not aware that they have sexomnia? We're never going to know the answer to this question. Whether this guy was a predator or this guy suffered from sexomnia, ultimately, we can't know. It is impossible to know. And sounds like it's going to be always a bit of a stone in your shoe not to have a definitive answer. We can game out likelihoods here. Sexomnia is really rare. Only 8% of people who have sleep disorders who go to sleep disorder clinics have sexomnia. So people with sleep disorders, tiny slice of the population, people with sleep disorders who have sexomnia, even tinier slice of that tiny slice. Less uncommon on the ground, assholes, sexual predators. Sexual predators don't have fangs and twirl mustaches. Sometimes they seem like good and decent and nice people and you detect no red flags. And often that's intentional. Somebody learns to stuff all the red flags into the closet because they want someone to trust them so that person is vulnerable to their predation. And that may be what happened here. He may have been an asshole who, when you fell asleep in the bed next to his bed, waited until you were sound asleep to climb on top of you and start humping you and then spooning you and then staying in your bed after you got out of bed and fled before he was confronted by your sister and her boyfriend. In a way, though, his behavior after you got out of bed argues either for sexomnia or a strategy on his part to appear to have sexomnia. Because if he was assaulting you, if he was climbing into bed with you to assault you, he was wide awake. If he was a predator, wide awake. And so you getting out of bed and leaving the room would have been to him a sign that this was all going south and he wouldn't have been asleep when your sister and brother came in. He probably would have been wide awake or gone already. He felt like he was about to be caught. But here I am just speculating wildly, right? Because we will never know the answer to this question. And part of me wants to encourage you to embrace whichever answer makes you feel better. But I don't want you to be then more vulnerable in the future because you're very clear at the beginning of your call that you had a good feeling about this guy, that he seemed like a nice person, that you detected no red flags. And so then if you say, well, this was obviously sexomnia because somebody I had a good feeling about and detected no red flags around can't be a predator. Well, that's not always true. There are people out there who seem like good and decent and kind and lovely people and you don't see any red flags and then they pounce and you letting your guard down around them because they seem like such a great person wasn't an accident. That was that person setting you up. So I don't want you to embrace the answer that may leave you vulnerable in the future, but I also don't want you to move through the world paranoid that every person you have a good feeling about is just waiting for you to let your guard down so they can take advantage of you either. But in the end, sexomnia or sexual predator, you were assaulted. You were traumatized by this experience. Your experience of it in the moment 
when all the cortisone and adrenaline flooded your system, you experienced that the same way. That was the same. Whether or not he was a sexomniac or a sexual predator, your panic, alarm, and terror in that moment was the same. And so nothing about choosing either answer is going to undo that, undo this trauma, which is my way of backing into saying I hope you have spoken to a therapist about this, someone trained in helping people who've been traumatized sexually. And it is possible to be traumatized by someone who wasn't seeking to traumatize you. People have experienced sexual trauma at the hands of sexomniacs, of, uh, of intimate partners that they had established relationships with where the partner didn't realize that they were doing anything wrong or unwanted in that moment. Maybe it was things they'd done in the past that were right and wanted, but at this moment were wrong and unwanted and they didn't perceive it because they had too much trauma. People can be traumatized by people that weren't attempting to traumatize them, whose motives weren't predation and sexual assault. You can own your feelings around this and they are legitimate even if he was a sexomniac. I wish I had a better answer for you. This is one of those cases where the only way to get the actual answer, to get the truth, would be to find this guy and I have him diagnosed, have him study, have him depose, talk to his doctors, his therapists, his shrinks, his sleep specialists if he'd gone to see them because it had been a problem in the past. And obviously it was a problem in the past if he knew to say, oh my God, I'm a sexomniac to your sister and her brother, which then means he failed in a way. Because if he knew himself to be a sexomniac, he shouldn't have gone to sleep with you in that room. He should have suggested that he bunk with your sister's boyfriend and that you two bunk together and lock the door. Hey, Dan and Nancy, I have a question about a roommate's sexual behavior during shelter in place. Um, I live with uh, two cis gay men. One is poly and one is in a monogamous relationship. Uh, the poly roommate, we'll call him Andy, before COVID was very promiscuous, very active on the hookup apps and especially like in-person cruising spots like gyms and parks. I have no problem with Andy's choices normally and have enjoyed many a juicy story from his encounters in the past. At the beginning of quarantine, Andy was very committed to not hooking up, even exploring some sex and love addiction support and investing in some hefty dildos. A couple weeks ago, he told me that he went out for a hookup. I was a bit in shock and asked if he wore a mask, if he washed his hands and showered, what precautions he was taking. He got very defensive and snapped at me saying, don't I trust that he would take precautions, etc. He later acknowledged that he shouldn't have snapped at me and we had a reconciliation. But since then, I've been scared to confront him about his actions, even though I had suspicions that he was continuing to go out and hook up. Fast forward to two days ago, I get a text from my other roommate's boyfriend, we'll call him Owen, saying that he has seen Andy on the cruising app, saying he wants to fuck and get fucked. Owen confronted him and learned that so far, Andy has had sex with one regular sex partner and a couple blowjobs from random strangers. The only precautions Andy is taking is washing his hands and taking a shower. Owen then told me he was comfortable with Andy knowing that he had expressed his concerns to me, but not that he was telling me about the specifics of the cruising. We agreed that we would be comfortable with him getting a fuck buddy or two who are only having sex with him if it prevents him from hooking up with randos. And thankfully, we live in an area with easy free testing, so I would like him to get tested at least every two weeks if he's engaging in this kind of behavior. 
Owen doesn't want us all to sit down together because he's worried of retaliation and that it, it will feel too much like an intervention. Dan, I'm very sympathetic to the woes of not being able to get our normal kicks, but I don't know what to do. I'm a very non-confrontational person, so the thought of just bringing this up directly to Andy is making me anxious. Help me figure out what to say or do so that we can live in a household where we all feel safe. Andy's risks are your risks, too. He's heading out to hook up with people and then coming home and breathing and touching things. If he gets himself exposed to COVID-19, he could, it would be very likely that he would expose you and your other roommates to COVID-19, too. So as awkward as it is to insert yourself into Andy's sexual behavior or sexual life, for your own health and safety, you should have a conversation with him about the steps he's taking, not to protect himself, but the steps he's taking to protect you. And you have a right to advocate for your own health and safety at this moment, even if it you know crosses what would have been a line six months ago where you're you know, interfering with somebody else's private sexual conduct. When it comes to COVID-19, somebody else's that you live with, their private sexual conduct, if it involves numerous other people, well, his exposure is your exposure. But you get to have a conversation with him about it. However awkward or confrontational that might seem, you're going to regret not having had that conversation if Andy comes down with COVID and you and Owen and the rest of the roommates all come down with COVID because Andy was taking risks, not just on his own behalf, but on all of your behalves. So drill down with him. I mean, ultimately you can't control him. He will do what he's going to do. He can lie to you guys in a way he's already lied to you guys, but you need to drill down with him. Like, what are you doing when you hook up with other people? You know, is it one or two other people you're going to hook up with regularly? We would be more comfortable with that. You can say all those things to him. Hopefully then he agreed to limit it to one or two other people and obtained your informed consent for him to do whatever it is that he wants to do with those one or two other people. He would honor that and stick to it. But there's no way for you to know for sure that he's going to. And if he doesn't, ultimately you may want to make other arrangements for him, someplace else for him to live at this time. We don't want to, you know, exaggerate or overestimate the risks, but the risks are still real, particularly now in the wake of all of these necessary, and I support them, demonstrations, people coming together this moment to protest the death of George Floyd and what it means for our culture that this continues to happen. Yeah, I support the protests, but they have upped the chances of new outbreaks in major urban centers where all these protests, all these people crowded together have happened, but people need to have sex. People need to have skin to skin contact. People need to find a way to express themselves sexually. That's as safe as it can be. That minimizes the inherent risks. When it came to HIV, as we've discussed on the show previously, when it came to HIV in the eighties, we found ways to minimize or mitigate risks, but the risks were just ours and our sex partners. They weren't then knock on risks for our roommates, for our parents, for our friends, for our coworkers, for the person who delivered our food. And this is what makes COVID different and insidious. That the risks we take are then the risks that our roommates are taking. We are taking risks and spreading them around in a way that we weren't 
those of us who were at greatest risk of HIV infection in the 80s and still had sex lives. So yeah, there's nothing I can say here that's going to make the conversation you need to have with Andy less confrontational than it is going to be. You are going to be coming between Andy and what Andy wants to do with his dick or wants done with his dick. And this is different. You know, we used to tell people, you know, one of the things we fought for with the sex positivity and gay liberation movements, all these things was self-determination. And, and, you know, you get to do with your dick what you want to do with your dick with other consenting adults who want things done to them with your dick. And nobody else gets to say boo to you. But right now, until there's a vaccine, shit is different. Other people get to say boo to you. Other people you live with get to say boo to you. You need to say boo to Andy. Okay, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Viola Sanderlin tweets, and we're going back to this again. Women don't sweat. They glisten. Glam is vaginal discharge. That is a term for vaginal discharge that I can get behind. Glam is a good thing. We all want to be glam, just like we all want to be jazzed or jizzed. I like it. Glam. Endorsed. Hopefully it'll catch on. Thank you, Viola. Elena McManus tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, just finished watching the Savage Livecast, which was fantastic. Please make Savage Lovecast shirts that say Nancy is my co-pilot. We love you, but Nancy was our favorite part of the show. Nancy's my favorite part of every Savage Lovecast. You guys don't get as much Nancy as I do. I have more Nancy in my life as we sit here and chat before and after the show. And I agree. And if we do another live stream of the Savage Lovecast, there will be more Nancy, I promise. Within and without tweets, hey at Fake Dan Savage, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for continuing to make your podcast through all of this. It gives me at least an hour a week to focus on something not tied to that orange blob in D.C. We've enjoyed continuing to bring the Savage Lovecast to you. We know everyone needs some levity and a break, and the people are still having sex and still having relationship problems and issues that they want to air or want to talk about or think about. So, yeah, it's not just been uh, hopefully a benefit or a boon to listeners that we're continuing to make the podcast, but it's been really good for us, too, that we're getting to continue to make the podcast. And we are very grateful to everyone who downloads, everyone who listens, and everyone who subscribes. All right, if you want me to potentially read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some of your response calls. Hi, this is a comment for the caller who is pregnant for the second time and is concerned about her libido and how it's going to react after the baby is born. From personal experience, um, after having my second kid, I, I struggled with all of the same things. But after the second time, everything came back much, much faster than it did the first time. And so I just encourage you to hang in there and know that it's so much easier the second time around because you, you know that it's going to come back and that it's not forever. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the guy on episode 710 who was having trouble dating and thought all the women were standing him up. There's a clue in his message, I think, <clears throat> the comment about what do you want to talk about, dot, dot, dot. In my experience of online dating, which is a lot, men today are not very good about keeping conversation going. They will respond to questions, but then they don't ask one back and the conversation just dies. And that's when I walk away. So maybe he just needs to work on his conversational skills and work a little harder to ask questions, and that might help. Hello. I'm calling in response to the woman in episode 710 who doesn't like giving oral sex. And I think 
Danny pointed out that trying it more than once is probably a good idea. I'm a buy guy. And I think for a lot of people that I've talked to, the first time you eat someone out at all, even new partners uh, to some extent, it's intimidating because you're trying to understand so much without really being able to see what you can do. There's tastes and smells and like the architecture that you're dealing with. And it's different and it's intimidating. And sometimes it takes a few times before you're like, I think I got this. I think I might like this. Uh, and even with new partners, it's, it's, there's a few times where you're like, I think I suck at this and what's wrong with me. But it's just an experience thing and trying to get over self-doubt and, and understanding. And it's something that maybe just give it a few more tries with a, with a partner that understands what you're going through and uh, take that pressure off, right? I'm trying to understand this better myself and I would like help to be better at servicing you. Can you, can you help me? That's my advice. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a comment or a question, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We want to thank everyone who virtually attended our first ever Savage Love live stream. We raised more than $14,000 for food banks here in my home state of Washington. Thank you, everybody who came. It was really fun. We are going to do it again. And we will have more Nancy when we do it again. This Friday, June 12th, is your last chance to watch the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival. And if you're looking for even more Hump, starting Saturday, June 20th, we are launching Hump's Greatest Hits with tons of our favorite dirty movies from 2005 to 2018. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to watch trailers, read about the films, and snag tickets to both. Also, this is the last weekend to catch the Confinement Online Film Festival, a showcase of amazing short films about lockdown, produced by many of the makers, many of the filmmakers of Hump. Head to cough.tv, that's C-O-F-F TV, to find out more and grab your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Ty Mitchell at TyMitchellXXX. That includes a lot of his porn work. If you want his writing and rage, follow him on Twitter at TyMitchellXO. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by the amazing and awesome, and we want more of her, Nancy Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you to everyone who's out there protesting, and everyone, please be as safe as possible.